Eric is going to be preaching to us, and, but firstly, I want to embarrass him because I, I would, I'd want to say this about Eric. Um, I've known Eric since they, Eric and Philippa moved to, to Rugeley. I'm hoping that he will acknowledge this back, but he might not, uh, that I, I would acknowledge him as a, as, a, as a friend and as a good friend. They would be somebody that I would turn to uh, for help, and uh, you don't raise your eyebrows. I would, Eric. I might be coming tomorrow, and uh, and that's the stuff. But on another side, there are people in your life that shape you and help you, and I, well, Eric is one of these guys that just sort of does that without telling you. He sort of shapes you. So I would say, you know, if I've improved, and and that's up for debate. <coughs> why are you eating in front of me? Are you distributing these sweets? It's it's all right. <laughs> They're getting ready for the sermon. You know, <laughs> open those humbugs. Do you remember those days? But anyway, anyway, what I would say is this: quite simply, this that that um, Eric has helped me to be some of the person that that I am, and he's not done that forcefully or by telling me off. He's just gently helped to shape me. Uh, in in my ministry so personally in front of you i want to say eric and philippa thank you and i'd like to ask you to welcome him i've got good news i'm not going to preach through all these notes just before anybody leaves Uh, well nigel I think the days of you being able to embarrass me are probably behind us now. But thank you for saying that. And uh, before Nigel and I worked together, he was really bad at picking on people. (laughs) So you will realise what an amazing transformation there's been for his low-key approach to picking on people today. (laughs) Right, it's really great to be here. Um... We're about as far away from you as it's possible to get in Rugeley. We're right on the east side of the region. At the moment, you're the westernmost point. And it isn't true that we sent Nigel and Callie as far away as possible. We really loved having with them. It was a big wrench um, to release them to come and be in Wrexham. But actually, we're thoroughly glad that we did. Because every time we hear about what God is doing here, we feel part of you because of Nigel and Callie coming. So even though we're 66 miles apart, give or take half an inch, um, it's just lovely to be here and see you in the flesh. And uh, first time in this building, um, looks like it could be quite nice when it's finished. (laughs) Are they using, uh, are they saving up for the ceiling or what? (laughs) Okay. What I'd like to do today is to think about something that happened 3,000 years ago, which is even before I was born. Now, it might sound like very old news, something that happened three years ago, but actually it's still shaping and influencing how we are today, which is quite surprising. And I think it has something to teach us about our own circumstances. Now, I'm an Englishman from England, And I have a very clear understanding of the names that we give to people. But I'm privileged here today to be amongst many different nations. And I wonder if anybody has this as a name. 
Do you have anybody down your road called any of these things? Oh, that's interesting, because I thought the last one sounded quite Welsh. You could really say that one with a nice Welsh accent, couldn't you? Well, how about these two then? Are those more widely used? Have we got a Joshua or a Caleb in the house today? No, but most people here will probably know one. You see, now that's odd, because something that took place 3,000 years ago is influencing how we name our children today. Now, those of you that are wide awake and alert will have realised that we're probably going to talk about the spies going into Canaan today, and you would be absolutely correct. And uh, if you've got a Bible and you'd like to turn to Numbers chapter 13, I'm going to read some verses from there to get us started. So Numbers 13, beginning from verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. We've already seen the names, so we're going to skip down to verse 17 um, to save a few minutes. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negeb and go up into the hill country and see what the land is. And whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they're few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage. And bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Which I'm informed is about July in that part of the the world. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Libahamath. They went up into the Negeb and came to Hebron, Achiman, Sheshai and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. However... The people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. That's significant because they were big guys. 
The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb, the Hittites, the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people for they're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land they had spied out, saying, The land through which we've gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron the whole congregation said to them would that we died in the land of Egypt or that we died in this wilderness why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword our wives and our little ones will become a prey would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land. For they're bread for us. Would we say, they're toast. Don't know. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Let's pray. Father, one of the things that I'm so grateful for is having your word in printed form that I can turn to whenever I want. And Father, I know that for many of my brothers and sisters around the world, that's not something that they have. But Father, that's something that I want to give thanks to you for this morning. And what I ask now is that as we spend these next few minutes considering the verses we've read, that your Holy Spirit, who inspired them in the first place, might come and breathe life into them once again, that your power might touch our hearts, that our minds might be instructed, and our hearts moved by the power of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. So what actually happened here? One of the first things we should always do when we're trying to interpret scripture is see what scripture says elsewhere about itself 
And interestingly, in this case, Moses gave a very long history lesson to the next generation. And in the beginning of Deuteronomy, we find Moses telling the next generation, 30 years on, what had happened at this point in time that we've just read in the book of Numbers. And as we look into that chapter in Deuteronomy, we get some additional insight into what actually happened. And uh, Moses tells there how on arriving at the border of Canaan at Kadesh Barnea, he said to the people, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and take possession. As the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you, do not fear or be dismayed. So Moses, the way he tells it here is that when they arrived at Kadesh Barnea, which was right on the edge of the promised land, he made an announcement and said, guys, we're here. It's yours for the taking. But instead of going up, they said, actually, Moses, we've had a thought. Let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. That sounds like a very good idea, doesn't it? But actually what it did was it deferred the time when they would have to go in and possess what God had already decided to give them. But Moses' recollection was that this seemed a good idea at the time. And uh, already we've got here a hint of things to come. Moses reminded them of God's promise. And uh, their reply to him is, well, let's not be too hasty about this. So when we come to this passage at the uh, beginning of Numbers chapter 13, and we see that uh, Moses is hearing from God about this, my suspicion is that God wasn't initiating this spying mission, but given that that was what the people wanted, God was shaping this mission so that it could serve his purposes. And uh, so in these verses, 17 to 20, we've actually got the very clear commission that Moses gave to the spies. And if you look at that, it could be straight out of Conquering for Dummies, textbook, couldn't it? Because he says, well, don't just look at a bit of it. Go through the whole of the land. That's pretty sensible advice, isn't he? Come back and tell us what it's like. Assess the people and see whether they're weak or strong. Have a look at the type of land. How good or bad is it? Are there trees or not? And where the people are living, are they just in tents? Or have they got big fortified cities? We need to know. And interestingly, he then adds, and do your best to bring back some fruit for us. Now, one of the key things was there was to be a senior leader from each of the tribes. Now, I understand from this that God wanted this to be something that all the people would receive. He didn't want one tribe to provide all the spies and then to come back and for them not to have the authority and the reputation to speak into anybody. So we see God's hand clearly at work in this commission. 
And uh, the 12 men then set off on their exploration, and they were gone for over six weeks. Um, it was quite a journey. It was over 200 miles right up through what God had promised them, that territory. And uh, on the way back, they were able to pick up some samples of fruit so that they actually came back with some evidence of just what this land was like and uh, what it had to, to offer. Now, I don't know what six weeks felt like there, but you imagine being camped in the wilderness. You know you're on the verge of something big and some guys have gone off on a fact-finding mission I think those days must have seemed interminable. You know, people would be getting up, they'd be looking out, trying to squint into the distance to see if the spies were returning yet. And then one day there was a sudden buzz about the camp because there was a cloud of dust coming this way and uh, they were coming. And all the waiting and anticipation was about to be ended. And uh, we get an initial report. When you've got two million people you're reporting to, just how does that work? Well, I didn't figure that out. But I guess that they went to Moses and Aaron, and as many people as could, I guess, were crowding in to try and airwig what was going on. And they actually had two things that were really important that they reported. And the first one was that this land is flowing with milk and honey. And what's the subplot there? Yes, this is the place that God spoke to us about. It is the place that he promised. We've seen it, and it is like he said it would be. And then there, in the English Standard Version, it says, however. I think in some of the other translations, it says, but. Because there's a big but in here. They said, it looks great, but. And then... There's the not-so-good news. But there are people living there. Some of them are built a bit like Hulk Hogan. They're all over the place. And some of them are in strong cities. So we're not going to wander in there and just take this. There's a struggle ahead. There are challenges. And they also gave chapter and verse on which tribes were living in which parts. Now, so far... All the spies seem to be agreed. They've all travelled together, they've seen the same things, and the facts that they're feeding back don't seem at all contentious. And while Caleb seemed quite happy that they could go in and take the land, he was outnumbered five to one by the other guys who thought the bad things they'd seen were actually the more significant. And uh, as they retold the story, and we find that in verses 32 to 33, it starts getting exaggerated. So initially they'd seen some giants in the land. Now everyone in the land is a giant. <coughs> and actually, we just felt like little grasshoppers. And to them, we looked like little grasshoppers. And of course, bad news travels fast, doesn't it? So the buzz went round the camp. Oh, there are big cities there. There's giants. 
They look right down on us. And panic set in. And even though Joshua and Caleb tried to reason with the people and said, look, if God's for us, if he's delighting in us, no matter, he'll take us in there. But overnight, there was lost sleep and uh, the people rebelled and were not willing to follow Moses into the promised land. In fact, they took up stones and they were about to dispatch Moses, Aaron, Caleb and Joshua by stoning them to death. But the glory of the Lord appeared and they seemed to have backed off. Wouldn't you? (laughs) Just. Now, of course, we've got the benefit of hindsight and we know how it all panned out. We know that they wandered around and shouted a bit and the walls of Jericho fell flat. But if you put yourself in the position of having travelled 100 miles in two years with all of your family, you're camped on the edge of the wilderness, you're eagerly anticipating this promised land that you've heard so much about, and then somebody comes back and says, actually, there's a teeny-weensy bit of bad news. It's covered already with people who are actually twice your size. So it's the basis for getting a bit upset, isn't it? And uh, what happened was there was uh, a progression here of uh, what happened. First of all, um, they were listening to negative messages. And of course, when you start listening to negative messages, what does that produce in you? Negative feelings, perhaps? Yeah, we get negative emotions. That's right. And uh, in Christian circles, and actually in business and pretty much any organisation, when there are lots of negative emotions going around, guess who gets blamed? It's the leaders. It always is. Um, And you can see that in Parliament. You can see it in any type of organisation you look at. And churches are not immune to that. And you see, it just started so innocently in those people. They were just listening to these messages from the spies. And there was some truth in the messages, you see. It wasn't that the message was false. It's just that they received it. So negative emotions, lost night's sleep, blaming the leaders, next step. And suddenly Egypt seems very attractive. The fact that they'd been laboring every waking hour for the Egyptians is easily forgotten. What they remember is that they had fresh vegetables and no enemies to face in battle. And what can happen to us as well, can't it? When we get into difficult circumstances and the going gets tough, where we were before starts having a feeling of comfort and it's often based on a false memory. And then finally, the end of it is that anybody who speaks the truth, which in this case was Joshua and Caleb, then becomes the enemy. Because the situation that you've put yourself into, they're now fighting against that situation. So they become public enemy number one. Now if we're brutally honest with ourselves, and you've been around more than six months, you can probably remember times when you've drifted at least some of the way down this path, if not as far as the children of Israel. 
So let's not look back and condemn them, but rather let's see what we can learn from them. And perhaps the most important question we have to ask about these events is why? And why was it that 12 people saw exactly the same things, but 10 of them responded in one way and two responded in another way? And I believe it's a matter of perspective. You see, Caleb and Joshua saw what was happening from a prophetic perspective. You see, their thinking was shaped by the fact that Abraham had been promised that his children would be like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the heavens. And that they would possess the promised land. So Joshua and Caleb looked at the two million people camping in the desert and said, two million people have come from Abraham and Sarah. God's promise is being fulfilled for us. They had with them a casket with Joseph's bones in, because Joseph believed that they were going to inherit the promised land. So when he died, he says, when you go to the promised land, take my bones with me. Joshua and Caleb remembered that as they came out from Egypt, the Egyptian army was engulfed in the sea. They remembered the time when water had come out of a rock to feed them, when the bitter water had been made sweet. They remembered that God had provided the manna and the quails. You see, they were living with all of that. So they knew God's promises, they knew God's provision, and they knew God's faithfulness. They'd seen his plans coming to pass by seeing the multiplication of the children of Israel. Seventy went to Egypt, two million came out 400 years later. And now they'd seen the milk and honey of the promised land. So you see, Caleb and Joshua were prophetically attuned And the lens through which they were looking at these circumstances was a prophetic lens. As a result of that, they projected their faith onto other people, saying, this is what God can do. And they warned the people of the danger of rebelling against God. And they exhorted Israel, hey, don't be afraid of these guys. They're toast if God is with us. Now, the perspective of the other ten was very different. And I've called that they had a problematic perspective. And I think their view was shaped by what they felt they could achieve. And when they saw the cities, when they saw the size of the people in the promised land, they said, we're not able to do that. And it also seems that their oppressions were formed by the fact that these other people were looking down on them. They came back feeling like grasshoppers. So the result of that was, what did they project? They projected fear, uncertainty and doubt on other people. They magnified the problems and minimised God. 
whereas Caleb and Joshua had magnified God and minimized the problems. Now, while Caleb and Joshua were able to understand that they were on a journey and they'd seen all these other steps of God fulfilling his promises, the other guys didn't see it. I don't know that these were bad men. They were not necessarily bad guys. They just did not see in there what God was doing. So they felt exposed, they felt weak, and they felt vulnerable. We had a graphic illustration of this during the week to earth it back into the present. Philippa was uh, at uh, one of our small groups and uh, a lady there, who Nigel would know, so there's no names, <laughs> said, why don't we ever have anybody healed in our church? And uh, it's the sort of comment that makes you want to cry because just the previous Sunday in the presence of this lady, two people had stood up and testified to being healed. And over the months, you know, we, I, I could list, you know, probably a score of occasions when God has moved supernaturally to heal people. Now, this is not a bad lady. She's a lovely lady. But somehow she was not able to see what God was doing. And as a result, she was in the position of being discouraged. Other people in the room had seen what was God was doing, had seen exactly the same circumstances, had been in the same meetings, but had reacted in completely different ways because one was able to discern the hand of work, God at work and another couldn't. You see, for Joshua and Caleb, the grapes spoke to them of God's promises being fulfilled. It stirred up fresh faith in them. And for the others, the fortified cities and the giants just shouted danger and uh, filled them with fear. Well, Eric, that's all very interesting, maybe. But how is that relevant? And uh, I think... Uh, I'd like to remind you what Paul wrote to the Romans. He said, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So you see, although this is an interesting piece of history and an engaging story about the nature of people, it's actually intended by God to be something that encourages you and gives you hope. So our challenge in the next couple of minutes is to take what we've seen in this and apply it to us here today in Wrexham. I was going to quote the date, but I'll probably get it wrong. <laughs> so you see, in thinking about this this morning, our expectation should be that we learn something, that we're encouraged, and we have new hope for the week. Now, as we just think back, I guess there were four groups of people there, weren't there? There was the children of Israel en masse. There was the, what I'll call the good spies, the bad spies, and then Moses and Aaron as the overall leaders. So, as we've been going through that, have you personally identified with one of those groups? Or not? Did you know that you have a choice? You can actually choose which of those groups you want to be like. 
And if you want to be with the, uh, what I'm going to call the opposition, there's some very simple steps you can take which will move you into the opposition camp without a shadow of a doubt. First of all, whatever you do, don't read your Bible. And if you hear any prophetic words in the church at any time, block them out and never recall them to memory. Whenever you get the chance, find somebody who's got something critical to say and sit down with them and spend as much time as you can. And if it's possible, don't hear any testimonies about the good things that God's doing. Or if you do get caught out and you actually hear one, forget it as quickly as possible. You see, if you do all of that in no time at all, you'll be feeling really negative You'll believe it's all the leader's fault and you'll probably wish you were back somewhere else. Okay? So if you want to be the opposition, that's all you have to do. Relatively simple and straightforward. On the other hand, if you say, well, I'd really like to be like Caleb and Joshua, there are some alternate steps you can take which are actually equally simple first thing you could do is make yourself familiar with what God has said. What is it that he's promised? And there's a couple of aspects to that. First of all, what has he promised you as your birthright in Jesus in Scripture? Yeah. Are you feeding on it every day so that good things are going in here which are sustaining the spirit, your new spiritual life? Do you know what God has promised you? Are you claiming those promises, possessing them and moving in? Or are you just leaving that as riches on a shelf for some other time? But then you may also have specific promises. And I know that as a church here, there are specific promises for Gateway Church, which you should all be able to tell me after the meeting this morning. And uh, as families and individuals, you may have prophetic words and pictures that have been shared with you that give you future hope about your ministry or about things that God is going to do to bless your family. So make yourself familiar with what God has said. Now, I'm not the best person at spotting what God is doing in a church. I know that that there are people who are more discerning than me. And maybe that's true for you as well. You hear other people saying, oh, God did so-and-so, and you think, I didn't spot that. Well, don't feel guilty about it, because that does nobody any good. But get alongside people who are discerning God at work and see if you can find out how they do it. But at the very least, listen to what they're saying about what they're seeing. As you do that, your own ability to discern God at work will grow. When you hear stories about what God has done, give thanks. Express your gratitude. It was great this morning to just have that time in worship of um, giving thanks to God. And uh, I found what was shared then really moving. It touched my spirit. And actually, when we give thanks to God for what he's done for us, it does something in us by way of building into our lives. And having given thanks as your instant reaction, remember that. 
save it up like encouragement for a rainy day. You maybe have a little bit of corner of your bank account where you put money aside for when there's going to be a big bill. What you need to do is to put on one side all of those encouraging things that God has done in you, through you and around you so that when you're feeling challenged by circumstances, you can feed on those. Thank God for them over again and remind yourself who it is that cares for you and loves you more than you'll ever know. Now, if you do these things, you'll find yourself possessing more and more of the promises of God because you'll find that your gratitude for what's happened before will take you forward and give you the confidence and the faith to go and seize more of what he's promised for you. So what I would like you to do now is to look into your heart and be honest for a moment, not with me, but with yourself. When the spies came back and told their stories, which ones would you have listened to? Would you have been more swayed by Joshua and Caleb, or would you have been more swayed by the guys with the bad news emphasis? And actually, to ground that and earth it, who are you listening to now? Who is it that has your ear? Are you in fellowship regularly with people who are really encouraging, who are constantly reminding you of God's promises, who are constantly reminding you of the things that God has done for you and around you? And he's waiting to do for you. Or are you finding yourself just so focused on the challenges of life that there doesn't really seem to be time for that? Well, you have an opportunity to change that balance. And I guess your goal should be to be one of those people who is feeding the good stuff to other people. Can you be one of those people who's reminding others of the promises that God has given about this church, about your family? Can you be the one who reminds them God has been faithful to his previous promises, so he's going to be faithful to these ones as well? Now, if you can do that, you will do uh, an amazing work for God in seeing lives transformed. You see... We are just like the Israelites. We've got giants. There are things that are difficult. Life is full of challenges. And there's going to be times when it's very tempting to falter. And instead of pressing forward aggressively on the basis of God's faithfulness, we actually hold back to wait and see how things pan out. Or perhaps believing that it will be a bit more convenient next week or next month or next year. You see, God wasn't asking the Israelites to take the land of Canaan in their own strength. He wasn't saying, I want you to get up such an amazing fighting force that you'll carry everything before you. 
But what he said was, come with me and I will fight the battles for you. He'd already demonstrated that before. You remember that time when they held up Moses' arms and while they were held up, the battle went with Israel. This had happened within the last few months, but already they'd forgotten that. And you see, it's exactly the same for us. God isn't expecting us to work miracles, to do things beyond our capability. He's wanting to use us in that way. His grace is sufficient for all of our needs. So, we uh, have got an interesting example of this in Rugeley right now. For us, the big word hanging over us is about finding new premises. We don't have the luxury of all this space you've got here. We're literally in like this at the moment with every space that we can get a chair on has got a chair on it. And it's a great problem to have. But God has spoken to us about making space um, to be a church of 200. And uh, so for the last two or three years, we've been looking at buildings. We've been getting, building up a building fund to do this. We've been talking about what we need, how big a space you need for 200 people, you know. How many toilets do you need for 200 people? And really important questions like that that Paul doesn't seem to have grappled with at all, but, but we are. And uh, we found one very nice modern building, and we thought, yeah, that just seems like the place for us, and applied for planning permission, and it got turned down. And uh, that took about six months to get through that bit. And uh, then we heard that somebody else had got the building, so we couldn't appeal against the decision. And so we've been looking at other ones. We've looked at empty shops. We've looked at warehouses. We've looked at the old magistrate's court. We've looked at all sorts of places around Rugeley that might have the space that we need. And uh, we went to one of these two or three weeks ago with a group of us. And we had... uh, a spies-type experience. Because uh, some saw all the space we needed and they saw three-quarters of an acre around the building, bags and bags of parking space, and unlimited potential for our vision probably for the next 10 or 20 years. Some other people saw a line of girders right down the middle of the building, which meant you couldn't get a proper meeting space in there. And they saw a really tatty 1970s building that needed all sorts of bits fixing. Now, you see, both saw what they both saw was true. But one group came away saying, oh, let's not pursue that any further. And the other group came back saying... That's fantastic, because our present building was built by a group of about 30 people and has served the church for 26 years. So our faith step is, can we do something now that will serve the purposes of God for the next 25 years? You know, so we want something with enough land with potential to grow. So that was interesting, you see, because exactly the same. So we're now having a very interesting discussion. Is this building God's provision for us and that these girders down the middle and all this tattiness and things like that are merely giants that we need to slay with God's help? And there's a small matter of half a million pounds as well, but let's not get bogged down in detail. Um, Or is the fact that there are girders down the middle and all this tat 
just an indication we should go and look somewhere else. So, so this actually has real life application in the discussions that we have and uh, we need to be sensitive to God to move into that. So I would like to uh, leave you with a challenge this morning um, uh, and that challenge is, do you know what the promises of God are that you should be moving into? If your answer to that is no, then uh, maybe over the next week you sit down with uh, your small group leader or a close friend or something and you actually have a chat about that because you should find that within Scripture there are promises of some things that you still have to move into that God has opened up for you. And it may be that God has also spoken to you about your career or what his calling for you to serving him would be longer term. So dwell on those things. And uh, if there are things that are blocking you making progress in those, then offer those up to God and let today be the day when you decide that you're not going to hold back from what God has promised for you. Because he's saying to you, I've promised it, I've given it to you. Your part of this process is to possess it. Now, um, I have here, which wasn't my notes, um, uh, an A4 sheet with some summaries of things that I've said and a list of the scriptures and some questions that might challenge you to think about this and uh, work through it. I would like to uh, lead us in prayer, if that's okay now. Father, I'm just so glad that you haven't finished with me yet. And I think other people are even more glad that you haven't finished with me yet. And Father, we thank you that we're on that journey of being sanctified by you and prepared to be prepared to come into your presence. And that's just such an amazing journey to be on. And Father, we want to enter into everything that you have prepared for us. To not hang back because of fear, diffidence or laziness. And so Father, I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, you would remind those people here who you have made specific promises to of what those are. Father, I ask that where hope has died, you would breathe onto that the fire of your Holy Spirit to rekindle that sense of going after you with all of their being. Father, if there are those that are struggling with marriages which are, are less than you've ordained for them, Father, I pray that you would give them new hope for breakthroughs. If there are parents here with children that are away from you, Father, that you would stir hope in their hearts that you're a God who is a promise-keeping God. Father, that you would give them a new persistence and perseverance in prayer to come and seek you for their children. And Father, for those that are facing um, difficult circumstances in their work environment, Father, I pray that you would remind them of the promises that you gave them when you took them there and that you would give them hope for a different future. Father, we thank you that you're a promise-keeping God and there is no one like you. 
Father, we thank you that you are worthy of all the trust that we can ever put in you. Father, help us to live as if you are a promise-keeping God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.